Morning, everyone. Morning. Morning online. Everyone, can you say hi to the people online? So good to be together. So good to see some familiar fa uh, faces back in person with us. So, so good. You know, uh, my son has been going to, our son has been going to a college in Denton called uh, University of North Texas for the last two years. And he's committed uh, to a church there. He told me about a month ago, uh, Dad, you know, I've been going just about every Sunday. Uh, no one in two years has ever invited me home. I thought, man, that's so sad, man. I wish we could teach these people some of our sort of Southlands hospitality, dining room table Christianity. And then we were doing devotions as a staff about two weeks ago. And Luis, who uh, is our college intern, one of our college interns, did devotions. And uh, we feel like he's an incredible part of the family. And he said, you know, I've been coming here for about two years and no one's ever invited me home. Humble pie, <laughs> humble pie. And uh, so I wanna take some time. I think Southlands is often known for being a warm family feel church, but I know we haven't arrived. And especially after the year we've had where for many of us, it's costly to gather around a table in a backyard, in a lounge. Some of you, it's even costly to come here. Just revisit this value of dining room table discipleship. And we're gonna to go to Luke chapter 24. It's Jesus reclining around the table. And he's gonna teach us some values of being dining room table disciples. So let's go there. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, I've lost my place, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest seat. Or the lowest place. But when you're invited, go in and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember that verse, we'll revisit that. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet, invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he set his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, so what you've commanded has been done. And still there's this room, room around the table. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Jesus wants a crowded house. Amen. Amen. He wants his house to be full. Amen. Saw Amanda wearing a t-shirt. Stand up, Amanda. <laughs> Make heaven crowded. It's wonderful. That's what this is primarily about. Make heaven crowded. But actually there are some incredible lessons on what it is to be a dining room table disciple. Remember Easter last Sunday, we, we read from Luke 24 about how Jesus was invited in to dine at the table with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he kind of had his arm twisted. He went in and he broke bread. And as he broke bread, their eyes were opened and they recognised Him. Jesus does some of His best work around the table. And we know there are moments in Luke where Jesus is teaching to crowds. But as I've read through the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, so much of his teaching is done around tables. And here in this particular passage, Jesus is invited to a banquet. And it's a banquet by the ruler of the Pharisees. He's the honcho, he would be like the lead elder of the church. And he's wealthy and he's powerful and he's just surrounded by wealthy and powerful friends. But these Pharisees, they are legalists. And so they take the laws of God and they build them higher with their laws. And then they self-appointed policemen to make sure no one breaks their laws. And if they do, they canceled. And so they invite Jesus, but it says they're watching Him. This is not a safe dinner. This is like going into the lion's den. And Jesus is at his, I think, his provocative best. He accepts the invitation. And then he knows, like in front of their noses, he's gonna heal on the Sabbath. And before he heals on the Sabbath, he just asks, just so it's clear, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because he knows that they are gonna slap a fine on him for a moving violation on the Sabbath. And Jesus is so full of compassion with this man who has dropsy. We'll get to what dropsy is later. 
He can't help himself. He heals him, even though he knows it's gonna rile the Pharisees. If it was me and I healed the guy, I would heal him and get out of Dodge. He stays and he does a show and tell around the table. He teaches them about hypocrisy. He teaches them about pride and humility. He teaches them about hospitality and generosity. And he shows them how not to be what they are, which is Pharisees. He actually teaches them how to be dining room table disciples. For me, it's, a, it's an incredible privilege to preach from behind this pulpit, although it is not much of a pulpit. But, but preaching on a Sunday is an incredible privilege. I'd love to do it every Sunday. I'm glad I don't though. I believe in preaching in team and expounding scripture, preaching the gospel, uh, hopefully the gospel preached leading to worship and lives laid down and obedient responses. I hope and I think it, 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 it shapes this church. And what I don't wanna do today is lower the value of pulpit preaching. It is and will be central to this church. What I do wanna do is elevate the value of Monday to Saturday discipleship around a table, in a backyard, in a lounge. We've said for years, circles are better than rows. Rows are great, rows are great, but circles or rectangles or squircles, <laughs> they, are, they are better. Circles are better than rows because rows is where you grow. Rows is where you let down your God. Rows is where you learn to serve others. I love these moments, but you know, you can very easily pop in, arrive a little late, leave a little early, not speak to anyone, be served, but not connect or serve. That's why Jesus did so much of His ministry around a table because He was about moving the crowd to community and the community to discipleship. I wanna credit Chris and Meryl Vinant who led before us for this phrase, dining room table Christianity because they taught it and lived it. I wanna carry on that legacy strong, especially as we've grown in this tent and my how we've grown. But you know, I wanna credit them, but it's a Jesus idea. It's a Jesus idea. And so he calls us to be dining room table discipleships. How? How from this passage? Well, firstly, I wanna look at dropsy. What is dropsy? And I've got some nurses here who are gonna keep me honest because I mispronounced the word for dropsy. But the medical term for dropsy is edema, which is essentially the filling of the body, the limbs in particular, with fluid from overconsumption. In other words, these wealthy, powerful people, they'd ate and drunk too much, they were bloated. It's a rich person's disease. And so this guy who had dropsy was literally drowning in his own fluid. And Jesus healed him and then he used him as a show and tell. It's like Jesus was saying, this guy's physical greed is killing him, I'm gonna heal him. But then pointed to the Pharisees and said, your spiritual and material and social greed is killing you and I'm gonna heal you of your consumerism. 
dropsy is a little bit like gout. Any of you had gout before? None of you will put up your hands if you did because having had gout, it's kind of double pain because there's a mixture of pain. Gout is excruciating. I've had it about three times. But, but man, the shame that goes with it too. Because you're like, oh, I shouldn't have had that third helping of tri-tip last night. I feel pain and I feel shame. I've overconsumed. Well, dropsy is a little bit like that. Any of you gonna stand with me and say, I've had gout before? <laughs> no one, okay. I'm the only one. But you say, well, well, well what do you mean by, by consumerism? What, what, is that, what does that mean? How does Jesus heal us of consumerism? Well, consumerism essentially means you come to the table for what you can get rather than what you can give. Do you think that this Pharisee hosting had a motive of just generosity and hospitality? No, he wanted something. He wanted something from his wealthy, powerful cronies. And he also wanted to get Jesus canceled. And so he was watching, he was watching them and they were all watching him. They were also hoping to jockey for a higher position. They came to the table as consumers, try to trap Jesus. They came feeding their social and spiritual appetites. The beautiful thing about dining room table discipleship is that it actually forces us to bring something. Something in our hands, maybe a bag of chips, something in our hearts. We get to let down our God, show what's going on. We bring something. C.S. Lewis gave a uh, such a powerful, compelling picture of the difference between heaven and hell. And he said, it's like a banqueting table, dripping with delicious food and drink. Both heaven and hell have this incredible table, people crowded around it. Both heaven and hell have these utensils that happen to be three feet long. So no one around the table can feed themselves. He says, the difference between heaven and hell is in hell, people are clawing and fighting and arguing, trying to get to the food, refusing to feed each other, and the food rots, rats crawling over the table. In heaven, same food, same utensils. This time, they're using the three foot long utensils to feed one another and there's joy and there's satisfaction. It's the difference, he says. See, when you come to the table, you actually come to feed, encourage, bless, help others, and you find that you yourself are fed in the process. Jesus wants to move us from consumerism to contribution. And I think the last year, as tough as it's been, it's actually gone a long way to killing consumerism. Even on Sunday mornings, I love the fact that we've got to bring someone, we've got to bring our camping chair. I love the fact that we've embraced discomfort here. You know, in a year, I've had quite a lot of complaints. I've not had one person come and say, you know, the air conditioning duct over my head is just way too cold. Please, can you turn it hotter? No one has said that. It's been amazing. No one has come and said, you know, the pocket of 
the place where I'm sitting, the music is just way too loud. No one has said that. We've come with a sense of, we've embraced discomfort. We're not gonna be Goldilocks Christians, too loud, too soft, too hard, too cold. There's a sense in which we've embraced it and we've said, let's come ready to give. And that's an amazing thing. A little bit of a heads up. Some of you have been asking, when are we moving out of this beautiful tent? We've been talking as elders, especially as the governor is talking about June 15th opening up. We are going to not go in there until we can get 100% capacity in there. We've prayerfully considered our options. At the moment, by God's kindness, we, we simply can't get everyone in there at 50% capacity. So we're staying here, firstly, just because of capacity. Secondly, it gives cautious people kind of a safe way to come back in the next couple of months. It just feels like people can sit on the outside, people can be spacious, and so that's awesome. Also, it just seems like there is a sense of God doing something in worship and community that is remarkable. And so we are planning to go in, but we will not go in until we can get in there 100% capacity, all right? Thank you for journeying with us. That might be 15th of June, it might be a little later, but actually sometime during summer, we will go in and we'll let you know. But God wants to move dining room table disciples from consumerism to contribution. He wants to move us to embrace authenticity over hypocrisy. Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of Sabbath observance here. Isn't it interesting? They are watching Him. They are working very hard to watch whether He's gonna work or not. They are working very hard to, to move to the most honourable positions. And then Jesus says, so if your ox falls in to a well and drowns on the Sabbath day, will you lift him up? Essentially, he's saying, you care more about your animals than you do people. This guy here with dropsy is drowning in his fluids. You'll res rescue an ox not him. Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. The beauty of dining room table discipleship is that it moves us from hypocrisy to authenticity, where we actually get to reveal our true selves. And that takes real guts. It takes time. Some of you have been hurt by hypocrisy in the church, often at the hands of leaders. And I get it, I empathise with you saying, man, I'm gingerly coming back, not too quickly. I get that, I get that. But I want to remind you that whenever Jesus talks about our salvation, He talks about adoption to a father, but also adoption to a family. Salvation is not just to God. Salvation is into a family. Luke 15 that we're gonna go into next week is talking about the son, the prodigal son, that that comes to his senses and comes back to the family. And in the family, there's this feast. It's an amazing thing, it's full of joy. But also in the family, there's this grumpy older brother. And Jesus knows that his house has some grumpy older brothers and sisters who are hypocritical and can hurt us. But Jesus is still just saying, actually, you are much more healthy around a table than you are out by yourself. Do you remember that Jesus himself was hurt by hypocrisy around the table? 
Think of the Last Supper. Judas kissing him. Meantime, he was going to betray him. Peter, I'll never deny you. And he was going to deny him. And Jesus knew these things, but still washed their feet. It's an amazing thing. Jesus is not naive about the danger of authenticity around the table, but he says, dangerous authenticity is better than hypocrisy by yourself. How many people do you know who refuse the dining room table and try to follow Jesus on their own that are really, really healthy? They're not. Jesus calls us and we know in the early church, there was incredible revival, 3,000 people saved and added in one day, Acts 2. And then what did the disciples do? Because they'd seen Jesus around the table. They, it said, they met from house to house. And I love this. It says, and in house to house, they ate the bread of sincerity. Isn't that beautiful? They ate the bread of sincerity. They took off their masks. They let down their guard. They didn't play games. They revealed their weakness. They didn't judge one another. They prayed for one another. An amazing, amazing thing. I remember early on leading this church about 12 years ago, and uh, there was this couple who lived in Yorba Linda who started visiting, and it was awesome. And then they stopped visiting, and Renelle and I went and got dinner with them. And we were just like, man, we're just checking in, like, no problem, no pressure to join, but like, are you here? Are you gone somewhere? Well, we love Southlands, but man, we've gone to another church. Oh, where, where's the church? Oh, it's an hour away. Huge church, awesome programs, awesome facilities. Great, no problem. Like, why are you driving an hour away though? The guy says, two reasons. One, uplifting sermons. Two, they leave me alone. Interesting. And I just went like, huh. We do neither of those things. We kind of preach challenging messages. I mean, I think they're uplifting at times, but I mean, pretty challenging. And we won't leave you alone. We kind of lovingly want to get in your grill. We want to say, we want to get to know you well. Come. And that's costly. But actually, according to Jesus, that's, that's healthy. That will keep us from hypocrisy. Nell and I have been doing a couple engaged groups in the last year, and it's been wonderful. And the one, man, it was the very first one of the revival primer. And there's the 20 people, most of whom we don't know, newer in the church, and we're praying through, we're kind of lamenting and repenting. And I mean, repenting can be a bit awkward, right? Right? Like new friends repenting, how honest are we gonna be, etc. And I'm just about to close it because it's a little bit awkward and let's move on to something else. And this one guy, he just says, no, 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 I need to repent. Okay. What do you need to repent of? Because I'm angry at God. I was like, oh, we just got real right here. I said, why? He said, and he burst into tears. He said, because I'm angry at God because my wife suffered for so many years before she died. Broken, I just watched the room go, oh, it's hard. And an elderly lady walked across who I know has known a lot of pain in her life, placed his hands on his shoulder began to pray comfort over him. I just said, that's why dining room table discipleship is healthy. He came back the next week. I said, how are you doing? He said, man, still got some pain, but much better. But I felt like Jesus talked to me about being overly focused on my pain. So I started focusing on others in pain. And now I'm starting to take communion 
to some shut-ins, people who can't get here on Sunday. After Sunday church, I go and I take it to them. I was like, that's what dining room table discipleship does. It takes us from overly focused on ourselves, focusing on others. Authenticity over hypocrisy. Three, disciples are called to gather in humility to serve others. And Jesus begins to talk about this wedding where the guy comes in and he takes the seat of honor and the host has to say, I don't know, go to the seat of dishonor, right? I mean, a modern version of that, right, is a single dude walks into a coffee shop and there's like an eight-seater table and he takes his keys and drops them on his like dibs, goes and orders his coffee. A family of six walk in and he has the dude just sitting at his table of eight. Dibs, dibs, puts his laptop there, dibs, dibs. And the family of six is like standing against the wall. And the coffee shop owner has to come to him and say, sir, I'm sorry, please, can you leave and vacate? There's a table outside so that I can seat these people. And he does the walk of shame out of the coffee shop. Uh, Jesus is actually using a wedding banquet setting. And here, it's the guy who kind of arrives late at the wedding. There's no seats in the house open. He sees right at the front in the first row. Oh, there's a seat open. So he runs down just before he beats the bride and he plops down next to the parents of the bride. And the father of bride looks at him and says, what are you doing? That's grandma's seat. And grandma is like walking down the aisle slowly and he just does a walk of shame from front to back. Jesus is saying, there are basically two ways that you can live your life. You either humble yourself and you're exalted or otherwise you exalt yourself and you are humiliated. It's two ways, humble and exalted, pride and humiliated. And he's saying, you choose, you choose. And so think of the converse, where someone arrives late at the wedding, close family friend, no seats, maybe just one right at the front, and he's just like, no man, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stand at the back, no problem. And the father of bride comes and says to this lady who's arrived late, no, 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 we have reserved a special seat for you. Come to the front. And he walks her to the front right next to Grandma, essentially Jesus is saying, in your life, you can walk one of two directions, either the walk of shame from front to back, because you picked the seat of honour, or otherwise the walk of exaltation from back to front, which is it gonna be? I mean, very practically, humility, hum humbling ourselves, it's really costly, it's, it's counterintuitive to humble ourselves, because we are taught to humble ourselves means you get stepped on, not exalted, right? Funny, my wife, whenever we have people around in our engaged group or whatever, she always says, look, don't always take the most comfortable chair. Number one, it's rude. Number two, you're gonna talk too long if you're comfortable. <laughs> she does. Take a hard chair because that's polite and you'll talk for shorter. Do I always listen? Sometimes. But, but, but pride is, is so natural to you and I to, to put ourselves forward. And it's so counterintuitive to, 
to humble ourselves. And one of the reasons is that our culture has sanctified pride. It's sanctified pride with words like self-esteem and self-confidence and self-actualization. These aren't Bible words. In fact, we get the idea of self-actualization from a psychologist called Maslow, Abraham Maslow. I remember my, my, mom, my mom was director of uh, social welfare department for our city growing up and she would have Maslow's hierarchy of needs stuck up in her office. And it was like this triangle at the bottom was food, water, clothing, shelter. And then at the top was self actualization. And you and I have drunk the Kool-Aid of that stuff where we actually believe the reason for our life is to realize our gifts, to realize our talents and realize the reason we were created. And so we live our life going like, look at me. How can I find a way to actually realize how gifted and great I am? Now, it's not wrong to want to use your gifts and to want to actually recognize the reason you were created. Not wrong. The problem is, I mean, you're saying, yeah, but I feel called, I feel gifted, I feel like I wanna be a leader. The, the issue is how are you gonna get there? Because if you're pri proud, you will fight and claw and jockey for position so that you can realize yourself. If you humble, you'll say, I've got these desires, but I will humble myself and serve others and allow Jesus to exalt me. How are you doing with that? Oh, it's quiet in here. Look, I, I'm stepping on a cultural idol right now, self-actualization. But, but hear me, Jesus says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the way we get there, beloved. It's the way we get there. And I've found, because I fail at this, I've done my fair share of walking from the front to the back, trust me. My wife and I, our, our happy place to unwind is Mexico. We go for about a night every month. We go to the same place, south of Rosarito. And because we go there, we've got this fast pass, fast pass. <laughs> the only problem is, you're like, huh, what is that? The only problem is my wife has got hers. I don't have mine because I go to these weird countries. So the government is suspicious of me. <laughs> so my wife goes through and drops me at like the walking place that sometimes takes an hour and a half to walk, it's humbling. She goes through and waits in the coffee shop, fantastic. So like, as it is, I'm like, oh, this is getting my pride, you know? I stand, about a month ago, I stand, I wait an hour and a half, I get one person from the front, but it's actually a family in front of me. I'm like, at last, stupid people. <laughs> and they can't find their passports. So they go to the, go to the side and I'm just like, come on. So I go to the office, I say, can I go through in front of them? And he says, no, you can't, you wait. I say, okay, step back in line. 10 seconds later, he says, you cut in line. I say, I did not cut in line. 
I've waited from the front to the back. He said, you did cut in line. Even the guy before me says, he didn't. I was standing with him. He's like, I don't care. You're lying too. Go to the back of the line, he says. Whoa. I just do the walk of shame. <laughs> just because I'd cut in line. Oh, how do you know if you're proud? A five question test very quickly. This is courtesy of Mark Driscoll and there's some irony in that. <laughs> Number one, do you long for attention? When you're around the dining room table in a backyard with people, do you long for attention? Do you hog the conversation? Are you kind of the drama queen or drama king? It was like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm terrible, this is the deal. It's a form of pride. Two, do you become jealous or critical of others who succeed? Can you celebrate their success or do you become jealous or critical? Australians call that tall poppy syndrome. Anyone grows tall, you just cut them off. Three, do you have a hard time admitting you're wrong? Oh, well, to err is human. I'm just human, you know? Or otherwise, it's not my fault. You blame shift. Four, do you cut in line? <laughs> yes, sir. My wife says that when we travel in, in, in airports, I have an airport demon. She says that. She's like, what comes over you? Why is it that you like just have to be in front of that person? You know, as soon as the plane comes to a standstill, I mean, you just have to be in front of that person. Why? Like, it's not gonna, I don't know. Maybe I'm proud. <laughs> Five, do you tend more to have an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness? I deserve this. I've worked jolly hard. I deserve this. Or thankfulness. Score yourself quick. Score yourself. If you get between one and five, you're proud. If you get zero, you're very proud. <laughs> very, very. I find the best way to grow in humility is not to focus on, I must be humble, I must be humble. C.S. Lewis said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. All of us have got dreams and desires. That, that's, that's godly. But actually, to humble ourselves and say, how can I serve others and trust that Jesus will exalt me in due time? I find growing in humility is best when I, I focus on the great servant, Jesus, who humbled himself, it says, having the very nature of God, did not grasp, but humbled himself, emptying himself, taking on the nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death on a cross. Jesus allowed people that He created to trample over Him, to crucify Him. Wow. But God exalted Him to the name that is above every name, that at that name, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. You don't believe that God can exalt the humble? What do you do with Jesus' life? He is our model. We go through the way of the cross, trusting that Jesus, the God of resurrection, can exalt us. We can only do this as we focus on Jesus. We focus on the power of the Spirit. I met with a man this, this week who's newly married, but they had kids early on. And he was just being authentic. He was saying, man, I'm really struggling with lust. 
He said, the one thing that I've found when I feel sexually tempted, the best thing I do is serve my wife. Isn't that amazing? It's like, dude, remember that. That's amazing. As I serve others, actually Jesus exalts me above this thing. Serve others, the power of servanthood. How are you doing? Doing all right? Thumbs up? That's me being proudly insecure. Fourth, practice generous hospitality. He says, don't, don't invite your, your best friends. Don't invite the wealthy and the powerful. In, invite those who cannot repay you and you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. He's saying, in your hospitality, bring in people who don't give you an immediate reward of connection. I mean, all of us want community with people that we just feel chemistry with. That's not wrong. Jesus did that with His disciples. But His heart of hospitality was for those on the margins, those who had nothing to give, only a reward at the resurrection as you invite in the lame, the poor, and the blind. What does that look like? And He speaks to the host saying, man, if you really had my heart, you wouldn't have your best buddies around. You'd have people that can repay you with nothing. Here's the challenge, beloved. Here's the challenge. Whether it's engaged groups or whether it's just speaking to your family and saying, look, one night a week, we're gonna have an open table and we're gonna allow people to come who really have nothing to bring. Lonely people, broken people, single people. I mean, God forbid that students go home week after week from Sunday and don't get an invitation to lunch. Really? Families, have a heart, have an eye for people who don't have family, please. I, I, I'm hoping that today invitations would go out. You say, oh, we've got to protect our family. Absolutely, but, but you know what? One day a week, one night a week, just, just bring them in. I am so blessed to have grown up in a family that prioritized those on the margins. If you go into my mom and dad's house, the dining room table is a door. 40 something years ago, my dad who's good at carpentry was like, I don't have much money, not even enough money to have nice wood. I'm just gonna take a door and put four legs on it. 40 some years later, same door. And that door signified the heart of our family. Every Tuesday, still today, was community supper. Anyone can come, the door's open. And it was like, come bring something. But man, the, the highways and the byways people came. I remember this one guy, Cliffy, who was, I think he was homeless. And he arrived one night. He's like, all I could afford was a bag of dog biscuits. That's it. I was probably 14, 15. You know the reward of that? The reward of that was that I was healed of ingratitude. So we didn't have great food either, but we at least didn't have dog biscuits. Amazing thing. Parents struggling with entitled kids, invite people who have less than you and see God heal them of entitlement and bring them to gratitude, amen?
as I land, hear the, the heart of hospitality of Jesus, the great host. He lands with this banquet and he sends his servants into the highways and the byways, inviting people. And these people give such lame excuses, but they're so polite. Oh, the, the table is ready. The wedding banquet, come on. I mean, who wouldn't wanna come to the king's wedding banquet? And they just say, oh, please tell the master that I've just got a span of oxen and I need to plow a field. Please excuse me. You're just so polite. Please excuse me. Oh, I've just bought a field. Please have me excused. I've just got married. Please have me excused. The polite refusal of people who are so full of good stuff. And Jesus is angered by it. And he says, okay, then you go to people, the poor, the lame, the lame and the blind, and you compel them to come because there's still room around my table. My table, my house must be full. Jesus wants a crowded house. He wants a crowded house in heaven. He wants a crowded house on earth. He does. And I know there's COVID complications with that, but, 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 but I'm just saying that's what Jesus says. My house must be full. Basically what Jesus is saying, and this is the gospel, The only thing that qualifies you to come to Jesus' banquet, to get into His kingdom, to get into heaven, all you need is need. That's it. You say, what do I bring? What do I bring to the table? All you need is need. And the people that were so full of their best life now, my oxen, my field, my wedding, they had no need. They had no hunger. They had no appetite. And Jesus, okay, go to the people that will. My house must be full. It's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but if they keep us giving lame, polite excuses to the king's banquet, they're idols, they're idols. Jesus is saying, say yes now. All you need is need. All you need is need. Jesus is also saying to us, not just the gospel, but gospel community. Compel people to come. Don't take no for an answer. Keep on knocking, keep on te texting. Actually, sometimes people will say no, but, but keep on, keep on, keep on and bring them to the table of the Lord. They need it. They need a feast on Jesus, but they also need to feast on community. Beloved, dining room table disciples, are what Jesus is after. I love this, but circles are better than rows. Circles are how you grow. Some of you are not ready to host, but some of you are called to engage as humble, other-centered guests. Please do that. We want to build community that is both deep and wide. We wanna bring in those on the margins, those that have been here for many years, we wanna keep on going deeper. Jesus wants crowd to become community and community to become disciples. So compel them to come, let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you so much for how gutsy you were around the table. Jesus, we, we recognise, like Karen said, that, that fear of, of going through the wardrobe into community, it, it's a fear, it's, it, it's costly. Some of us have been hurt. Some of us feel used. But, but we hear your invitation. And we confess that we have often filled ourselves with other things. But we say, Jesus, we need you. And Jesus, we need your people. So won't you by your spirit empower us to engage in growing as dining room table disciples.